Well, I've told y'all before that I enjoyed college. Anybody else here enjoy college? Have a good time in college? Some of you, I didn't go to college. I don't like college. No? Okay, there are two of you who like college. Well, for you, you're going to be able to appreciate this. I had a really good time uh, in college. Enjoyed it. And not only did I have a lot of fun in making relationships, spiritually, it was a really rich time for me. I learned a lot, uh, experienced a lot of God, and um, uh, grew a lot, I think, in, in maturity. Uh, it all started really my freshman year where I ended up uh, going to this uh, gathering of Christians uh, where they said, hey, um, you're a freshman in a warm body. Would you like to be on the leadership team? And I was like, yeah, that sounds like something that would be good for a resume. So I uh, signed up for the leadership team, uh, started a Bible study on my, my college campus. And um, I, as we started the study, uh, I had never taught before, but um, some of my friends said, hey, we'd come if you were to teach it, no matter how bad it is. And so we started the Bible study, and um, it, we, we really got excited because people started coming. We had some professions of faith, uh, and then we started having other churches ask us to lead these uh, events for youth, uh, these youth conferences. And so we'd have hundreds of youth come, and we get to teach them the Bible, and uh, we started seeing them be encouraged spiritually. And, and so at this point in my life, I'm beginning to feel like we're just spiritually taking flight. I mean, I've led a few people to the Lord, and uh, all of a sudden, I feel like I'm the next Billy Graham, right? And so uh, I, I'm about this point in my life, and I show up at my aunt's house, and my aunt lives on the beach in Biloxi, and uh, I come to her house, and she knows how excited I am about the gospel, and she tells me about this friend of hers who happens to be there that day, just across the street at the beach with the boys, that she, he's watching the sons play, and um, as uh, I'm sitting there talking to her, she says, you know... Um, Josh, you should know that he's an atheist. And so here I am, taking flight spiritually, the next Billy Graham. And I hear that, and all of a sudden I hear uh, basically what is a cry for help to Superman, right? And so, I mean, I'm like taking off my glasses. I'm like, let's go. I'm ready. I'm going to share Jesus with this guy, and he's going to come to faith because that's what happens. And so uh, I run across the street. Uh, we pray. I run across the street. Um, I start talking to Bob. Now, Bob is a captain of these yachts for really rich people. So he sort of rides them, drives them around the world in, in his yacht or their yachts. And that's his job. So he's seen all kinds of things. And uh, so I start talking to him about how cool that is. And then um, I start to go into the gospel and whether or not he's religious. And he says, no, I'm not. I'm actually an atheist. And I said, well, well tell me about that. Like, how, did, how does that happen? And he says, well, you know, when I was a kid, um, my, my brother, uh, who I loved deeply, died. And um, immediately I began to have questions about how could a good God allow something like this to happen? And so um, immediately um, I find myself uh, going from feeling like Superman to feeling uh, very weak. And, and so um, I start talking to him about uh, what's, what's happened since and how he views God. And we start to talk about the gospel and we get into it. And um, essentially we get to the place where he's like, look, I just, I hate God and I, I will not believe in God. And I said, well, can I pray for you? And so I prayed for him in the middle of that prayer. Um, I, I actually began to cry. And, and I was crying because I, I sensed his need for salvation. And I felt utterly ill-equipped, unprepared. Like my words were just weak to be able to save him in the ways that I wanted to see him saved. And so I walked away that, that day from that beach. And though I, I stepped onto the beach with great confidence, I stepped off of the beach feeling very weak in and of myself and, and, and in my own words. And so as I did that, what I realized is that in that moment, I felt a, a unique 
weakness. I felt very unimpressive and ill-equipped. Not the way that I came into the conversation, but very much the way that I left it. I'm wondering, have you ever felt that way? Have you ever had an opportunity to share Christ with someone? Or or, or had a person who you wanted to deliver the gospel to, uh, who was facing a very difficult situation in life, and you wanted to help them, and you went in with great intentions and with a lot of hope, and, and then you got in the middle of it, and all of a sudden, you felt scared and small. Well, that's exactly the kind of thing I think many of us have felt. And maybe that sense of smallness has silenced your witness today. Well, I want you to take heart. I want you to be encouraged this morning because I believe that Jesus has an encouraging word for all of us. Now, we're right back in the middle of our series, The Amazing True Story of Jesus. And we're in Mark chapter 4, where we're going to see that Jesus tells his disciples, who probably were struggling with many of the same insecurities that we do, He encourages them and He says, I want you to take confidence that God spreads and grows His kingdom as we sow His Word. That's really we're going to be talking about that this morning. That's this. We need to take confidence that God spreads and grows His kingdom as we sow His Word. Now I'm sure the disciples needed to be encouraged. If you'll remember as we've been reading through the Gospel of Mark, they had all kinds of reasons to be discouraged with the things that they saw all around them. I mean, all they needed to do is look out and they could see all sorts of reasons that they might feel small and discouraged and ill-equipped for the mission that Jesus was about to send them on. Uh, They noticed that even with Jesus with them, there were those who would not believe the message of the kingdom. Uh, The Jewish leaders looked upon Jesus with disdain. They wanted to destroy Him. Uh, And and even the crowds who were willing to endure Jesus' words uh, really were most interested in the miracles. And then, of course, there's his family. And even his own family, his mother and brothers, thought he needed to be medicated. I mean, everyone is looking at this Jesus as he is there as one who is not to be listened to. But more than that, remember. Remember that not just the disciples needed to be encouraged. Uh, this letter was actually written to a first audience that would have come around 70 A.D. after the disciples. And I'm guessing that Mark knew that they needed to hear this message as they would have been facing increasing heat of persecution for their faith. And so Mark here reminds future generations of Christians, just like you and me, that Jesus promised the gospel of God's kingdom will go out. It will grow up to unimaginable heights. And he does that this morning with three parables. And so we're going to look at these three parables. The first one says, okay, disciples, the secret's about to get out. I'm going to show you what's going to happen. After that, I want to share another parable with you. And what this says is, is between uh, when I uh, die and am raised again from the dead and to when I come back, you're going to go through a a season of sowing seed. And and then lastly, I'm going to share a a parable with you where I want you to see that until I return and until my kingdom is shown up in its fullness of its glory, uh, this is what the, the normal Christian life is going to look like. And so we're going to look at all three of these this morning. But we're going to begin in verses 21 to 25 with this promise that God's kingdom will spread. In verses 21 to 25, we see that God's kingdom will spread. Now, as, as we look at this, you'll just notice that it's broken up into two little sections, and so we're going to deal with each of them. Uh, the first we find in verses 21 to 23, and look there with me again in God's word. Here we see Jesus tell them that the secret of God's kingdom is meant to go out. The secret of God's kingdom, it's meant to get out. It's not meant to be kept in. It's meant to get out. Notice what he says in verses 21 to 23. 
It says, and he, being Jesus, said to them, being the disciples, Is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed, and not on a stand? For nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. Here we we see this first section of the parable. And and Jesus, as you know, has been speaking in parables since Mark 3. And uh, those, of course, are stories really about natural events that prove or or teach spiritual truths. And so here he begins with his first of the parables. A parable about the secret of the kingdom of God being compared to a lamp. Now, as you think about a lamp, maybe in your mind you have like a camping lamp, a lantern of some sort, right, with some kerosene in it. Uh, This would have been a clay lamp that would have had an an exit where fire would have come up out of. And clearly, as we know, just back like back then, a light has never been meant to be hidden under a basket or a bed. See, light intends to reveal, not be hidden. Light is meant to be lifted up on a stand so that those who are in darkness can see. That's the purpose of a light. Now, so far in Mark's gospel, you might think that Mark is fixated on secrets, right? I mean, who doesn't like a good secret? Anybody here like a good secret? Uh, I know you do. Like, if you've ever had somebody come say, come here, I I got a secret I want to tell you, you can't tell anybody. Uh, How many of you go, oh, no, I'm not interested in that kind of thing? No, all of us are like, well, secret. Well, I want to hear that. Well, so far, Mark has been full of secrets. and, And we have drawn in close to see what this secret of the kingdom is. And so maybe you think that really that's all that Mark is interested in. He's interested in secrets and keeping secrets. I mean, Jesus' gospel thus far might look to you like Area 51, you know, a no-fly zone for outsiders. The gospel might look a lot more like, uh, like a, a top secret uh, than, uh, or the top secret formula to Coke where you got like two people that know what it is. I mean, at this point, Jesus has shared the secret of the kingdom with 12 disciples with all of the crowds that have pressed upon him. And so why is it that Jesus is keeping it in so tight? We know that so far Mark has told us that Jesus commanded the demons not to reveal who he is. And then when he speaks to outsiders, he uses language that is veiled in parables. So much so that even the disciples say, I know the parables are meant to confuse them, but we need a little help here. And so, maybe some misunderstood that Jesus meant that they should keep the gospel of the kingdom of God a secret. And that's what he intended. I mean, Mark 4.11 that we just read earlier last week says, to you, being the disciples, has been given the secret of the kingdom, but for those outside, everything is in parables. And I believe here Jesus wants to address this idea that maybe they're thinking that Jesus intended them to hunker down and guard the truth in such a way that you keep outsiders out. Maybe they were singing... As they thought of this, this little light of mine, I'm going to hide it under a bushel. That's right. Jesus responds, hide it under a bushel? No! See, the messianic secret that Jesus has kept during His earthly ministry came locked and loaded with an expiration date. And that's what He's telling us this morning. Uh, One commentator who is very helpful, uh, R.T. Francis, says this. He says, like the organizer of a treasure hunt, He hides things in order that they may be found. See, this secret entrusted to a few is destined to be manifested to all very soon. And this secret centered on Jesus' work of living a perfect life on our behalf, 
dying in our place on the cross and being raised again from the dead to declare that Jesus has bought and purchased for us reconciliation with God. That's the gospel. See, the gospel reveals God's hidden plan for redeeming sinners to himself. And Paul says the secret was blown wide open. Paul says it was blown wide open at the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. In Romans 1.4, maybe you've seen this before, but in Romans 1.4, Paul says Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by His resurrection from the dead. You see that? He was, it was openly declared to be the Son of God in power. So please hear me. The secret's out. When Jesus exited the tomb, He brought His secret with Him. And once, God, once Jesus ascended to heaven, He sent His Spirit to His people to send them out to tell all nations exactly who Jesus is. And it is the most important news that anyone can ever receive. He is the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the Creator and Sustainer of all things, Alpha and Omega, who is both fully God and fully man. He is both the Lion and the Lamb. And as such, the way, the only way, the truth and the life to get to the Father who is, the, is through the Son, Jesus Christ. There is no other way to find pleasure with God or to please God except through this One, this Son, Jesus, who is the Christ. That is the message, the secret, that has been brought to us and made clear in Christ. Brothers and sisters, this is the best news we've ever received. And if you're here this morning and you are a friend and you have not put your faith in this Gospel, uh, let me tell you that that this news that we're bringing you today, it is for you. Don't leave without putting your faith in this Jesus. He came to save you from your sin. He came to save you from the wrath of God, which is completely just. And God's invitation to you, along with all of humanity this morning, is that if you will turn from your sin to putting faith in Jesus Christ and living for Him, you will be saved. And you'll no longer be an enemy of God, but a friend of God and a child of God. Brothers, there's, there's no other promise that can be made to you today that is any sweeter than that. Your God wants to be your Heavenly Father who is for you. Put your faith in Christ. But here we also see in verses 24 to 25 something else. Notice what He tells His disciples. He tells them, your return on your investment in the kingdom Your return will always exceed your investment in God's Word. Your return, this is a promise, your return will always exceed your investment in God's Word. Look what he says in verses 24 to 25. He says, and Jesus said to them, pay attention to what you hear. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you and still more will be added to you. For the one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. Now, I believe this speaks about Jesus' parables, but it's also true of all of the Scriptures, of God's revelation to us. Do you see it? The light that is spoken of here is the message of the Gospel spreading and being understood. And he says, unlike your retirement plan, The more that you put in, the more that you get out. Right? Doesn't work like the world. You were promised this. 
The more that you put in, the more that you will get out. And it's not a one-to-one kind of deal. See, God says you get out what you put in and then some. I mean, what a, what a great small nugget of a message for us. See, we, we're told here a great truth about the nature of God and His grace. God's grace always explodes the limits of mere reciprocity. God's grace always explodes the limits of mere reciprocity. We always get far more than what we put in. I mean, how many of you would invest in a stock that promised this kind of return? I'm guessing all of us would. And here the investment is listening closely to the Word of God, which climaxes in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. And the more time and energy that we invest in understanding God's Word, the more that God Himself promises to entrust us with concerning and understanding His Word. See, those who don't invest lose everything, but those who do invest, they gain more than they can imagine both in this life and the life to come. Now later in 1 Corinthians 2, Paul is going to tell us that he has been given the task of communicating those messages, those secrets, those things that have been hidden from eternity's past to those who have ears to hear. And he says those who have ears to ear are those who have the Spirit of God dwelling in them. And so if we have the Spirit of God, what we are told is we have the ability to understand God's Word. We need teachers. We need gifted helpers in the church to help us to understand better. The Spirit works in community, not just in individuals. We need that. But what we are promised is, is that understanding is there for you and for me. We are promised that. The more that we put in, the more that we will understand. You know, this is one reason that our church is put so much energy into teaching the Word of God. I believe we live in an age and a day where people do not value words. Uh, we're kind of tired of words, right? We, we're barraged with messages constantly, and I believe that we have lost the value and the beauty of the fact that we have the very voice of God that has come to us in the Bible. And so we want to constantly be about the business of bringing people's attention back to God's revelation of Himself. And so we have all kinds of ways to do that. You'll notice we have equipping classes constantly. We have equipping classes on Sunday morning where we have gifted teachers taught by gifted men who spend many hours in preparation, who have given their lives to teaching because they want to help others see and know God. We have uh, opportunities where we actually have teachers who come on Saturdays uh, once a month to our equipping classes. We just had one this weekend. Uh, had a brother spend a lot of time preparing to be able to train others in the Word of God so that they can think more deeply about how God's Word can help you shepherd others and breathe life into others. And the reason He gives His life to do that and volunteers His time to do that, and all these men do this, is because they really believe that your life will be changed as you listen to God's Word and as you hear God's Word more clearly. And that the more that you hear, the more that you're ready to receive. And we do the same thing with our our equipped classes for men preparing for vocational ministry. See, all of these classes, our women's Bible study classes, these are all, it's not just because we have a lot of people who like to teach, it's because we really do have confidence in the power of the Word of God. Brothers and sisters, maybe uh, this morning you have grown cold to the Word of God and what you need is really more of God's Word. You need to put more of your heart into it, trusting that God has made a promise that He has sealed you with His Spirit so that you will see more of His Word. And as you see more of His Word, you will see more of His Son, Jesus. 
And as you see more of Christ, the more enamored you will be, the more in love you will fall, the more that you will want to change the way that you live forever because there is nothing like Christ. And we cannot get to Christ except through His Word. But we see something else here. Something glorious. Uh, Notice that God makes us another promise that is encouraging. Uh, In verses 26 to 29, He shows us this, that God's kingdom grows by God's power through God's Word. God's kingdom grows through God's power through God's Word. Now look what He says in verses 26 to 29. Hear the Word of the Lord. He says, And Jesus said, The kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself, first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in his sickle because the harvest has come. So Jesus shares here another farming parable. We see that he does this a lot. And God's kingdom is likened here to a man who scatters seed and then goes to sleep and the seed grows. He knows not how. Now here the the emphasis is on the mysterious results of his sowing. As As the farmer sleeps, the crop grows. And he really doesn't do anything between the sowing and the reaping. It just, in between, it is something mysterious at work. His work is that of sowing, the message of the kingdom, the gospel. His work is sowing. And God's work is growing. Do you see it? Like, He's doing the sowing, but what is that force that's bringing about the growing? It is God Himself. God grows this crop after He sows it. Why do you think Jesus would have shared this parable here? What do you think Jesus wants to tell you and me? In the same way he would have told the disciples. Well, you can imagine how encouraging this word would have been to that group of disciples who were distracted and disappointed by what their eyes saw and their hearts felt, right? I mean, they were feeling utter weakness. The the Jewish leaders, many of whom they they respected and knew, these crowds, and even Jesus' family have rejected Jesus himself. And I'm sure that Jesus sensed their hearts struggling, struggling to trust Jesus' word and anticipated their fear. When He would send them out, eventually two by two, equipped with nothing more than the Word, the good news of Jesus Christ. He wanted them to be ready. And the Christians later that would receive this, in 70 AD and later, when they would have first read this and received this, from Mark, this would have met them as they were experiencing great resistance to the Gospel. And they would have felt A sense of weakness at their words. Have you ever experienced this kind of weakness? This feeling of weakness? I I have. I I believe that if you're human and you're a Christian and you love Jesus, you you, you felt this. I've had non-Christians that I've met with for months reading through the Gospel of Mark, witnessing to them, praying for them, who have walked away deaf to the Gospel. Maybe that's been you. You you feel like you failed. Or or maybe you feel like in that moment that you're trying to attack the very gates of hell and all you've been equipped with is a little water gun. 
You're kind of squirting back the flames. I mean, at least you could have gotten a super soaker, right? But you got a water gun to go to battle with Satan. And your words, they just feel so weak and and not ready for the task that's been given you. Or, Or maybe you felt this with other Christians that you've tried to encourage. You've tried to counsel a brother or a sister who needed fresh words of encouragement or hope for their marriage that looked hopeless. Or they've just been diagnosed with some sickness and you just don't know what to say. And you're feeling in that moment like what you really need is an F-22 fighter jet, right? To come in and to bring hope and salvation where it seems like there's no hope. And you're, you're throwing little paper airplanes. And you're not very good at building paper airplanes. So you're not getting a lot of traction. And, and it feels in those moments, doesn't it? Like... There's just nothing working or happening with your eyes. You feel discouraged. And in this moment, we are given fresh encouragement. See here, what God says to the disciples and what God says to you and me, He tells us, don't underestimate God and don't overestimate yourself. Don't don't underestimate God and don't overestimate yourself. See, Jesus says don't underestimate the power of the gospel in others' lives and the way that it works. Sometimes you are sharing the gospel with someone and as you watch them, it looks like the seed is just bouncing off. Like nothing's happening. Like there's going to be no growth. And yet you pray and you wait and you trust that it is God's work to bring the growth, not yours. Or maybe, maybe you've forgotten that. Maybe you have overestimated yourself. See, God works through His people who sow His words, but it is God ultimately who brings the growth and works. Uh, Remember what Jeremiah 13.23 says. There Jeremiah asks, can an Ethiopian change his skin or can a leopard change his spots? Of course not. And then there's little hope for you who are accustomed to doing evil to do good. Maybe the reason that we get discouraged when we witness or counsel others is that we want the power ourselves to produce produce results that only God Himself can bring. Maybe we are, as we are in that moment, giving ourselves way too much credit and confidence in the work that God is at work doing rather than trusting that we are absolutely dependent. Not only them, but us. As we are looking for the results, we trust that it's only God that can do what we need. It is not my cleverness of speech. It is not me memorizing the Bible from backward to front. Now, I'm better witness if I do that, but ultimately I can do that and still I'm not promised that I'm going to bring everyone to Christ. No, we know that what we need is God Himself to work in us and through us. We need to see God do something that only He can do. See, maybe we underestimate the power of God and overestimate ourselves. God's power is displayed best in weakness. The way that we know that is, so says the cross. That's where God's power is on display. And it is still, His power is still on display in weak sowers like me and you. Where He makes sure that it is power, ultimately, that is given credit and His glory is made known, not ours. We sow, God grows. Keep sowing the gospel, brothers and sisters, in the lives of others. And wait and pray for the power of God to show up. God's people take God's word to others. We sow and we wait like the farmer. We wait. We wait 
We share Christ and we wait for the Holy Spirit to do His work of regeneration. When He raises someone from spiritual death to spiritual life. We, we wait. We wait for the Holy Spirit to sanctify His people, transforming them more into the image of His Son. We, we wait for the Holy Spirit to make His local church healthy by the power of God's Word. We actively wait by praying, killing sin, sowing more seed, and living a faithful life. Do you see it? What a triumphant promise from the lips of Jesus. This, this is a glorious promise. He says, ultimately, the kingdom of God doesn't depend on human effort and human insight can't explain it. Only God can explain God's kingdom. The harvest here speaks of the last day when Jesus will return to judge the living and the dead. And until that day, God's word will grow. It will grow God's kingdom in God's time and in God's way. See, not by human effort or human logic. What a joy. Isn't it a joy? Isn't it a joy to know that when you go and you witness and you feel like a failure, it's okay because that's God's job to grow it, right? Like my job is to sow. God is the one who brings the harvest. I'm waiting for God to do His thing. I've done my thing and I'm trusting in Him to do what only He can do. I love what Martin Luther says about this, especially given the fact that we're uh, this year celebrating the 500th year of the Protestant Reformation. The 500th anniversary of when Martin Luther went in, in October, uh, he went and nailed on 1517 uh, to the door at the church in Wittenberg his 95 theses uh, with a, a knock that basically resounded and thundered throughout all of Christianity. Uh, he changed the way that the church lived life together forever on that day. And here's Jesus' parable about the kingdom reminds me of one of his most famous quotes. Luther, Luther said this. He said, I, am, I opposed indulgences in all papists. Um, you know, those who support popes and indulgences paying for forgiveness with God. But never by force. I simply taught, preached, wrote God's Word. Otherwise, I did nothing. And then while I slept or drank Wittenberg beer, the Word so greatly weakened the papacy that never a prince or emperor did such damage to it. I did nothing. The Word did it all. Had I wanted to start trouble, I could have started such a little game at Worms that even the emperor wouldn't have been safe. But what would it have been? A mugs game. I did nothing. I left it to the Word. The Word changed everything. See, Jesus offers great hope in that. But there's one last parable on God's kingdom here that's meant to encourage us. And that's this, in verses 30 to 34, we see that God's kingdom grows disproportionate to its being, its beginnings. God's kingdom grows disproportionate to its beginnings. Listen to what he says, beginning in verse 30. Here's what he says. And he said, with what can we compare the kingdom of God? Or what parable shall we use for it? It's like a grain of mustard seed, which when sown on the ground is the smallest of all the seeds on earth. And yet, when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. And with many such parables, he spoke the word to them. And they were able to hear it. He did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples, he explained everything. Now, this parable seems to speak 
of the black mustard seed. It was used to make oil and and mustard, like what you would find on hot dogs. Probably Hebrew international hot dogs. But hot dogs. It it was a condiment. And, And I know that this wasn't the smallest seed, and it wasn't the smallest seed at the time, but it was really proverbial for something that is very small and tiny. And the language, it may actually say it's the smaller seed. By relationship, it's a small, small seed. And smallness really is the point. In fact, Don Carson, writing about this text, says, he says uh, that no Jew questioned the greatness of the future kingdom. Everyone had grand visions of what this kingdom that was promised would be. But its small beginnings would have been news. So God's kingdom began so small. And a seed, notice it wasn't just a seed that was enough. He, he had to use a really, really small seed and a single seed, a single mustard seed. And here the image is that God's kingdom begins so small, yet it grows up to be larger than expected and beyond what could be explained by natural occurrences. Of course, we know that mustard seeds could grow. They could grow and, and it'd be potentially 15 feet high. Uh, not very big compared to an oak, but very big considered to its small beginnings. That really is the point. It grows disproportionate to its size. I like what R.T. France uh, says about this text in his commentary. He says, Jesus' language of the great tree-like end of the mustard seed envisions Ezekiel's two cedars in Ezekiel 17 and 31. And Nebuchadnezzar's tree representing the growth of impressive empires. And the birds which nest in them are explicitly interpreted as all great nation who enjoyed their benefits. So so this might point this parable to the future wide scope of the kingdom of God that awaits on the last day when Jesus returns. And see here, God's kingdom is going to be beyond anything that they would expect. And on that last day, many nations, not just Israel, will find their place in this tree, the kingdom of God. And you can see how this would be encouraging. I mean, God's kingdom may seem unimpressive now, but friends, we haven't seen anything yet. Through this small seed, all nations will be blessed. The end time tree will be spectacular. And just as God promised Adam, just as God promised Adam and Abraham and David, That a great seed would bless the nations. Jesus was that seed. And of course the Bible ends with people from every tribe and tongue worshiping together before the throne in what will be a kingdom whose borders extend from sea to sea. And that's not just New Testament. That's Psalm 72. That's the vision of the kingdom that we await. And hear this. Hear this. God's kingdom, we are here told by Jesus, wins. And it will be great. Maybe as you were looking around you, as you look at perhaps the kingdom of God, you fear that maybe God's kingdom is losing and might be on the brink of falling apart. That maybe God in the end doesn't win. Here Jesus says, make no mistake, I don't care how small or unimpressive the seed looks. I want you to know that what is coming is mighty beyond anything you can imagine. God will win. It has been destined from the beginning. God wins. Make no mistake, this small thing that you have looked at will be great beyond your wildest imaginations. 
Do you see here what Jesus does? See, Jesus is inviting these disciples who in their present experiences are distracted from confidence in the Word of God. And here he says, I want you to understand a couple of things right now. One, I want you to understand that the power of God is at work in imperceptible ways. You might be looking at your life and your attempts at being faithful and feel like you have failed But you need to know this. God does not fail. He promises you sow, He grows. That's what God does. Second, He says not only that, I don't want you to trust God's power now. I want you to look to the future that awaits you. Do you see it? I want you for today to borrow against tomorrow. I want you to look to the future kingdom that's coming. To that great end that awaits us. And know that the realities that are coming are things that you ought to put your hope in. You can trust that God always makes good on His promises. And that kingdom that awaits you is going to be wild. It's beyond your wildest imagination. It's exactly what He calls us to do. He calls us to make daily withdrawals from future grace. I'd expect heaven to blow your mind. Do you know that? I don't care how good your imagination is. Heaven's going to blow your mind. Jesus says as much. But we ought to arm our minds constantly with future expectations that God has given us in His Word. So maybe heaven's going to be greater than we can imagine. But God says, not the point. I want you to go ahead and imagine. I want you to go ahead and try to understand what God has revealed and expect it to be all the better. But catch this, the images that He gives us are so good anyway. I mean, the images that we have in God's Word of God's place for us are amazing. I mean, we look to God's Word to give us more confidence in God's Word, right? You lack confidence in God's Word, we go to God's Word and it gives us more confidence in God's Word. See, God's Word tells us to trust God's Word. And remember that so much of what God promises us in the end boggles our imaginations. It, it seems almost, almost too good to be true. And so what I'd like to do, I want to close really with just five things that we see about end times. About this coming day when Jesus returns and the kingdom is, is, is exposed to us. Just five. There are so many more. But I, what I want to do is I'd like to just give you some images, a few images as we close, so that hopefully you'll be salivating for more than lunch as you leave here. That you'll actually have a fresh desire to think about heaven. And let me encourage you to continue to go through God's Word and add to this list. But here are some some realities that ought to shape our present day. So let me just share five of these. And I did this quickly. There are many more. But you could find more than this in your Bible. But consider these five promises. One, look at Revelation 3. We are there promised that God will clothe His people Himself and cover their shame. That's a future promise. He's already, in a sense, covered our shame, but there's a great day coming when, when we will be removed as far as the east is from the west from our sins. We will be having fully a new identity and Jesus Himself will clothe us. He will clothe us and cover our shame in the same way that Adam and Eve tried to clothe themselves as they were ashamed before God for sinning before Him. God says, I'm going to clothe you Myself and cover your shame. Ultimately and climactically, do you see? Like, that's a future promise that we have. 
We will reign with Him and He will clothe us. Maybe today you're here and you're ashamed of your past sins or your current weaknesses. And God says, there is a day coming where I will forever cover your shame. What a promise. Do you see how the future matters for today? That shame you will not bear forever. God is coming to remove it Himself. Or what about this? Second, 1 Corinthians 15 promises. We will have new bodies that will last forever. And restored creation. Free from the effects of the fall. So we don't have to fear what man will do to us for sharing the gospel. We don't have to fear what has been taken from us physically in this life. We do not have to fear. We can weep and grieve the sicknesses of this world, but we are promised something so much better in the world to come. God will heal us. He will heal us not just in the way that a doctor fixes something only to have something else break down. He'll heal us forever with bodies that don't break down. What a promise. Revelation 7-9, a third one, tells us that we will in heaven see people from every tribe and tongue gathered together around the throne of God, worshiping Him. Here's what that means. What a glorious image. means lots of things. But here's one. That means that we can share the gospel confidently with people all over the world, knowing that we're promised God will save some from every people on earth. He says so. People from every tribe and tongue will be there at the throne. Why? Because God says He's going to do it. What a great promise. Knowing that when we go to evangelize, that God will succeed and accomplish His purposes. We are invited to step into the victory that God has won on our behalf. Fourth, Revelation 21. Promises that God Himself will be with us in heaven forever. And that there He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death. It will be no more. In other words, all present sorrows, whatever you are sorrowful about today, whatever sorrow has captured your attention, maybe there's a sorrow that you just can't get rid of, and you've, you've sought counsel from others, you have good brothers and sisters in Christ around you, maybe in a community group who are encouraging you, praying with you, and you can't escape this sorrow. And you wonder if there will ever be a day when you'll be able to get free from it. It's almost as though it's got a hold on you more than you have a hold on it. And you don't know how to escape it. Jesus says there's coming a day where if you can't get rid of that sorrow in this life and the life to come, it will be removed from ever. And do you love the image? How is it going to be removed? It's the very hand of God that comes down and wipes away every tear. What a picture. Don't you long for the day when God wipes away your tears? Fifth, Joel 2. Joel 2, Old Testament prophet, promises that God will restore what the locusts have eaten. And in context, of course, we know that that is a judgment because of God's people sinning against Him. And even there, God says, when, when that last day comes, when Jesus returns, I'm going to restore you. Even the consequences of your sin will be paid back in full. Why? Because I'm a God of grace. And so today, maybe you're thinking to yourself, I have lost so much. There's no way that I could ever be repaid for the spouse that I've lost. Or the job that I lost. Or the retirement that I lost. And God says, 
Oh, trust me, you'll be paid back in full and all the more. Why? Because grace always exceeds our meager examples of reciprocity. God always shows up with more than what we've lost because that's who our God is. Brothers and sisters, let's pray to this great God as we close today. Let's pray together.